ora, and welcome to Legendary Conversations, a podcast by He Ako Haringa. In today's episode, we're talking about gout and how the ABC Health Literacy Model can help prescribers to better communicate with their patients about gout to improve health outcomes. Our custom education lead, Andrea Copeland, spoke with three experts in the gout and health literacy fields and explored patient attitudes towards gout and how the ABC model can help improve communication. Treating gout takes the whole team, and so we hope that this podcast can help everyone on Team Gout. Our first guest is Professor Nicola Dalbeth, an academic rheumatologist at the University of Auckland School of Medicine, whose work focuses on understanding the impact and mechanisms of disease in gout. Andrea also met with Carla White, Director of Health Literacy New Zealand, who worked on the ABC model discussed in this episode. Our third and final guest was Mayhana Douglas, a health psychologist and health improvement practitioner with the National Hoorder Coalition, whose postgraduate research focused on the perceptions of gout by rural Māori and general attitudes towards the label of gout. Now, over to Andrea. In my gout discussion, I first sat down with rheumatologist Dr. Nicola Dalbeth and asked her why it's important to prioritise clear communication with gout patients. Um, I think really in order to get good um, and effective gout management, it's really important to understand the condition. And the experience is, I think, actually quite a confusing experience because, you know, as a person with gout, Often the major symptom is a hot, painful joint, which happens really suddenly. And so it kind of makes sense to think about this as an acute condition, which flares up and then disappears. And I think as practitioners, we often sort of view it in that way as well. And I think it's really only once you understand, um, both as a practitioner and also as a patient um, or a person with gout, that gout is in fact a chronic disease of crystal deposition, really until you kind of come to that understanding, the rationale for effective treatment, particularly long-term urate-lowering therapies such as allopurinol, really just kind of makes no sense at all. So I think it's really important to understand that um, gout is a chronic disease, that it's a disease of these crystals that form in the joint, and that if you have gout and your serum urate's elevated and you're not on medicines like allopurinol, it's likely that you've got crystals in the joint and that they're just kind of sitting there waiting to cause the next gout attack. And the way that we can get rid of these crystals is with long-term therapy. And so, you know, I spend a lot of time in the clinic talking about that, um, often with you know, images of the crystals or images of the joints with the crystals presence, present. I also quite often use imaging techniques in, in my clinic. So that can be ultrasound at the bedside where people can actually see the crystals in the joint or also other methods such as dual energy CT, where again, we can actually see the crystals present even when the attack isn't, isn't there. I then asked Nicola about a recent paper she co-authored which looked at the idea of renaming gout in order to remove some of the stigma surrounding it. People 
often don't realize that gout is a form of arthritis, actually, um, which it is. And I think the other thing that this study really showed us was that, you know, in the in the general population, people bring their beliefs, these these cultural narratives about gout into the conversation all the time. So if you describe a condition called urate crystal arthritis, which is a condition of crystal deposition, which causes flares, which can be treated with a long-term medicine, and compare that with a condition called gout that has exactly the same description, people's views about gout are really quite different to their views about urate crystal arthritis. So they, they're much more likely to think it's caused by personal indiscretion, by food, by drink, that it's treatable by diet modification. So I think what that really tells us is that as a community, we have these perceptions and views about the disease of gout. And often these beliefs are inaccurate and they're often really unhelpful and stigmatizing to patients. And as healthcare providers, we bring these same cultural narratives, you know, we're not immune to them. And we need to be thinking about, you know, and checking, you know, are these actually correct? And if they're not, what can we do to make it make people understand actually what the, you know, what causes gout and what the effect of treatment is? These stigmas and perceptions can be real barriers when it comes to gout treatments, but there are tools that clinicians can use to help them educate patients on gout. One such tool is the ABC Health Literacy Model, a three-step framework that helps clinicians structure conversations with patients to better foster learning. I talked with Carla White, Director of Health Literacy New Zealand, and asked her about the three-step model and what it is and why it was developed. So the three-step model is a communication process uh, to be used by um, health professionals in personal interactions. Uh, with uh, patients or families. And it's a, a, a process based on adult learning theory. The three steps are ask, build, and check. So it's a cyclical process um, that you, you keep going through throughout a, a discussion. And the ask stage is about asking questions to find out people's thoughts, beliefs, knowledge, skills, feelings about things, um, because that's basically their schema, their understanding of their health and uh, and what it means to them. So on any topic, we have a particular schema. And every time uh, you talk about a health topic, if you can activate people's schema and find out what it is, one, it helps them uh, assimilate new information, bring it in and connect it. And also it's an opportunity to say, yeah, that's great. You do understand a whole lot of these things. So, you know, you're good to go rather than telling people things that they already know. Uh, so that's the, the adult learning principle behind it um, on the ask stage. Um, lots of open questions. They're different from diagnostic questions. So they're different from how painful is it or when did this start? They're really open questions about, so what do you understand about your diabetes? Those sorts of things. The build stage is about connecting to people's schema and what they already know. Because if people hear new information and it doesn't connect to what they already know, they're far less likely to believe it or retain it. Okay, because it, it doesn't sit anywhere and it's interesting, but it's not held on to. So that's why you're doing the asking before you're doing any building. And building can be done in loads of ways and, and people who work in health are fantastic at the building because they've got really good knowledge base and that they've learned some really plain language ways of describing things to make them, um, you know, work for people. And then the check stage is checking that you've given people what they need. 
So it's not checking that they've understood. It's about, okay, so if we could just go over what are the most important things that you'll be doing next, you know, or what have you taken from the conversation? What are the priorities? What's on top from this or what what will you be doing when you go home? So you're actually looking for information there, not just saying, is this all you need or have you got any questions? Because that doesn't really give you much of a picture around what uh, has worked for them in the in the conversation. And if anything hasn't worked or, or bits are missed, it's about taking responsibility for that and saying, I didn't cover that very well. How about we just go over this bit? Do you recall what we were ha- you know what we were talking about there? So that's your ask, build, check. And it's not kind of at the beginning of the appointment, you do all the asking and then all the building and then all the checking and you're done. It's this constant with every topic doing ask, build, check, ask, build, check. I also asked Mayhana Douglas, health psychologist and health improvement practitioner with the National Hauora Coalition, for his thoughts on the model and how the steps work. Three steps, I think, the simpler, the better in terms of building health literacy. So obviously, step one, just actually finding out, being curious, what do people know already? before we sort of delve into adding stuff, you know, because we don't want to be repetitive if they already know these things, um, particularly in primary care. So I think, yeah, step one, just understanding what they know. Step two, building from that. So what they've already got, what do you, what can we add as providers to help build that knowledge and the skills around their health literacy? Um, and then afterwards, just checking, getting them to repeat it back to you and asking you know, those same questions of what do they know now and whether they can repeat it back to you. And if not, Again, starting again. So the model itself is quite cyclical in nature. So can you talk us through about how repetition of the cycle can help clinicians keep their patients on track with long-term preventive gout treatments? Yeah. Um, I think repetition in general is just a really great way to consolidate on information, particularly uh, new information that people might be hearing for the first time can be quite easy to forget these things. And so we want to make sure that going, using the model, repeating, going through each of those steps, you know, no matter how many times it takes, because not only do we want to make sure that they know and understand, but actually remember these things for, because a lot of these things such as gout are long term. And so if people don't remember them once they leave the clinic or a week later, then how useful is that consult going to be? So definitely repetition to help just consolidate that information for the patient as well as for the clinician's own understanding. I think, yeah, I think it's great. So the three-step model, is that what you call health literacy 101 pretty much? Pretty much health literacy 101, I think that's where things start. I think that's the easiest way to introduce these sort of concepts around health literacy. I mean, some people not even might not even be aware of what health literacy. I'm sure we've heard of numeracy and literacy at school, but I think when it comes to health literacy, it's such an important thing that I don't think many people are particularly aware of or know much about. So, yeah. And do you think that that works both ways for both the patient and the healthcare provider? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think um, sometimes people have an idea of the concept, but I think once you sort of give it a label, people might not be able to give a proper definition. You know, if you ask someone to define health literacy, I'm sure you'll get a whole bunch of different answers. So I think, yeah, for the patient as well as for the provider, just having that in the back of your head, particularly as a provider, so that it is going to help shape the way that you help the whanau that you are helping. The ABC health literacy model is especially useful when talking to patients about gout. I asked Nicola how she uses the model in her conversations with patients. 
So I think it's really useful to understand, first of all, what people's beliefs and understanding is about gout. And when you ask that, often it is about, oh, you know, it's the food I eat or it's I'm doing the wrong thing somehow. And I think a lot of those kind of perceptions about the disease are really built in from messages that we have around us, from cultural depictions of gout, and also from interactions with healthcare professionals, where often we're saying, oh, what did you do? to bring on your gout attack. And I think those are really unhelpful narratives. And I think they really actually can be quite damaging because often it creates stigma. People feel embarrassed. They feel like they brought it on themselves. So I think that initial, what's your understanding about gout? What do you think is causing it is a really good, it's a great start. And then there's the kind of building understanding. And um, as, as doctors and healthcare professionals, we're really good at telling people things. Um, we do a lot of that rather than necessarily the listening. But I think it also often helps to sort of build in um, and reinforce some of those messages of understanding. Often in a clinic, we give a lot of information. And I think it's really important to do that checking and actually make sure that those core messages are understood. This three-step model is a great practical tool for clinicians. I asked Carla from Health Literacy New Zealand to provide some examples of how the model works in practice. I mean, let's talk about gout because it's a fantastic example for health literacy. And that's because there are a couple of really strongly held beliefs about gout in our communities. And they're, they're beliefs that have been reinforced over generations by experience and by the health workforce. So for, for many, many years, we, we have heard that gout is solely caused by what we eat, by the foods that we eat, uh, and high-purine foods creating a lot of uric acid in our systems. And so everything, uh, when you talk to people about their gout, will be, oh, I ate this, or I have to avoid this, or, you know, and, and when you get a gout attack, that's how you describe it, oh, I, I slipped up and ate such and such, okay? So that's, that's our, the schema. And, it, and it's a shared schema in families. And there's also this idea that gout is a temporary condition, excruciating but temporary. Okay, so then you get over it and it's done and you're okay again. So those two things mean that when someone says to you, oh, there's a long-term medicine you can take every day for the rest of your life to treat gout, that doesn't sit with your schema. Okay, so, oh, that's nice and I believe you that there is, but if something's caused by what I'm eating, the way to address it is to stop eating those things. So you've got two messages and they don't align. So you have to work with people. If you find out that their understanding is solely in that it's about what I eat, you need to help grow that to, yes, that's part of the picture in terms of foods because foods have purines and some have more than others. But what's actually happening if it runs in your family is that you've also got this genetic picture where your body wants to store loads of uric acid no matter what you eat. And that is where you've got this high level of uric acid and so you eat a Vegemite sandwich and whoa, you've hit into an attack. You know, you've gone above this level of what your body can cope with and that's creating crystals that go into your joints and that in the long term, attack after attack can cause damage to your joints. So it isn't just a short term thing. And it can, the medicines, the pain medicines that you're taking during that time to deal with each attack can have really serious consequences for your kidneys and, and you know, your system generally. So it's helping people have a different appreciation of gout. And then when you talk about medicine, long-term medicine, preventing that and bringing your uric acid levels down in your body to safe levels so you don't have any more attacks no matter what you're eating, 
Um, there's a lot more uh, receptivity around that. Like, oh yeah, that sounds like it might be something I'd consider. Or if you if you still want to do it diet based, it's still about monitoring your uric acid levels all the time, so you can see if you're in the safe zone or not. So yeah, forget if you can change the schema that people have and build that, extend on it. It's not contradicting it; it is just extending it to give them more information. They're much more likely to make really good choices around managing gout. Hmm. That's that's brilliant. So again, relating that back to gout and the specifics of the ABC or the Ask Build Check. Mm-hmm then you'd be asking what someone's understanding is of, of why they get gout and they, they may or may not say, oh, well, it's because I've eaten something. Yeah. Then you build on that by providing them with some other knowledge to let them know that, yes, food can be a trigger, but actually there's a genetic component. There's these other things that are causing it. And then the check, right. it's full circle. You're going back and checking that what you've told them is has been understood or that they can relate that to their situation. That's exactly right. So that, that's your cycle. You could also be asking them things like, um, do other people in your family get gout? Because that reinforces the genetic, uh, you know, picture that you want to then build. So you can ask quite a few questions around that. And, and ha- has anyone had some long-term joint damage from the gout? You know, has anyone in your family experienced that? So then all of these things make a much richer picture when they're pulled together. Mayhana also had some thoughts about how to get started with the three-step model to support a patient's emerging knowledge. I think practice makes perfect. I think even just practicing asking questions or different ways of being able to use the model in a more conversational, so it's not just the like the, the, the sort of three steps where you can integrate it into a more conversational manner. And so I think just practicing with other staff, even if you have to write out some examples to help prompt yourself, um, so that you do get into a bit of a rhythm when it comes to asking these questions. And then obviously just giving it a go. So even if you have to talk to family members or people outside of the medical community where if they can repeat that back to you, then you've done a really good job. But I think if they can't repeat it back to you or they don't know sort of how to summarize that back to you when it comes to those three steps, that could be a potential sign of, okay, maybe we're not conveying the information as well as we think we are. What can we do to better that? I then asked Dr. Nicola Dalbeth if she's seen the three steps model have an impact on a patient's gout outcomes. I think it's important to recognise that this isn't a one-off conversation. Actually, often it takes three or four or five times, actually. But I think you kind of know that actually there's been success when we can see, first of all, that the allopurinol is being dispensed regularly, but also when the patient comes in and they want to really see what their, what their urate is and what their numbers are. And I think once you're at that, that conversation where actually, you know, the patient's saying, okay, so what's my uric acid? What do my numbers look like? And then you can show what's actually happening with the lab results. Once the person's sort of really focused on their urate and asking those questions, that's really when you know that things are on the right track. And certainly in over 20 years of rheumatology practice now, I've seen many people who, you know, once they're established on urate-lowering therapy will start to 
live their full lives, you know, be able to go and enjoy things, be able to do sport, actually often get really activated for managing other aspects of their health as well, can enjoy food without feeling judged or that they have to make all these restrictions. And also a lot of the patients that I'm seeing in clinic often have often very severe disease, a lot of urate burden, often joint damage as well. And I think one of the really amazing things is seeing people actually being able to visualize these TOFI reduce, their hand function, their foot function improve, and also be free of these incredibly painful flares that have a huge impact on, on people's life, their ability to work and so on. So you know, there's lots of success stories. Carla also points out that communication style can have a big impact on patients' understanding of gout. The words in a message, uh, I think, make up about 7% of what people take in. 50% of it is from the body language that we're using, and the rest is in tone. So anything that suggests the idea of, you know, if you said the question, so what do you understand about gout? You know, and you're sounding a bit judgy and sceptical at that point. That doesn't work. You have to be genuinely inquiring about, so how does your gout work? Tell me what causes it for you. And that, that genuine interest and knowing that whatever people's understanding is, it's come from experience. And that usually outweighs science no matter what happens. So you have to work really carefully with that and appreciate that what they're seeing is absolutely what's happened. There's just another picture underneath here that is also um, something that we haven't talked about very much as a health sector. And what, what about abbreviations and terminology? How can we be clear? How can we make sure that we're being understood and that we're talking about the same thing? Certainly checking if people have heard an abbreviation before and if they're familiar with it and explaining it each time you use it for a while. With new terms, uh, about 40 exposures is what we talk about for people to feel confident using the term themselves. So if you think of words like liquefaction or even COVID-19, it took a while for us to all feel confident about using it or coronavirus. These new words, and most of the health words that we use like that, like acronyms and the medical terms for things, will be new for most people. I then asked Nicola if she had any advice around how to talk with patients about gout. You know, often what I'll say is, you know a lot about gout, you've experienced it, you know more about it than most people because you've lived it. Let's just sort of go through the basics so that we're all sort of talking the same language. If we're thinking then about these very sort of pervasive cultural beliefs about gout and what causes it, I think it's again sort of talking about people's own experience. And, you know, it's amazing when you start talking to people, actually, most people with gout have had a family member with gout or have other biological reasons that they have gout. You know, they've got kidney disease, they've had heart disease, and they're on medicines like diuretics. And I think, again, as that kind of clinical interaction occurs and you're sort of pulling out some of the other things, not just the diet, actually often that sort of process is really useful. So people often think of gout as caused by food and drink, but actually what we know is that there's a really strong genetic component. And when we look at your family, actually your dad had gout, and your cousins have got gout, and we actually think that that's a more important thing that's caused you to have gout as well. So it's not anything that you're doing that's wrong, it's just that this is the way that your kidneys are built, that they don't 
handle uric acid as well and your body can't get rid of the uric acid after a meal and so I think often it's pulling it back into and listening to people's stories and pulling out different narratives rather than the sort of the one that people hear all around so and and again that sort of personalizing of it I think is really important. Nicola also points out the important role that all clinicians play in the management of gout. And, you know, I think that we have really good data to show that practitioners who are not doctors are really good at delivering gout care. And we know that from nurses, certainly very good clinical trial data. We know that about pharmacists. There's some great evidence with Kaiafina, particularly in Northland. So it really is the whole team should be playing a role. Maori and Pacific peoples, particularly men, are more likely to experience gout than non-Maori, non-Pacific peoples. Nicola highlights the importance of thinking about how accessible our health services are to young Māori and Pacific men in particular. We need to be much more mindful that Māori and that Pacific peoples experience gout much earlier than non-Māori, non-Pacific peoples in Aotearoa. So what we see is we see younger people, particularly younger men, are less likely to receive regular dispensing of allopurinol. And so when we look at the differences in age structure, um, particularly a lot more younger Māori and Pacific men having gout, that leads to inequitable outcomes. And so we really need to be looking at the way that we as a healthcare system and as practitioners are delivering better care, particularly to Māori men and to Pacific men. We really need to be thinking about how does the system work for younger people, Pacific people, Māori, with gout. To finish our discussion on gout, Carla highlights that there can be a lot of emotions surrounding a gout diagnosis, and so it's important to ask your patients about their feelings and to display empathy. When we ask these open questions around what what do you think about it, what do you think about your diabetes or your gout or or your asthma, they also raise a lot of feelings that people have around. For gout, for instance, it might be around the guilt. You know, I know it's my fault or I know it's those sorts of things. I think being pretty empathetic around our response to that is really important. And not to avoid the feelings. Like if people feel that way, it's a thanks for sharing. That sounds hard. And hopefully we can provide some more information that gives you a, a different picture on this or extends your picture on that but being comfortable with the feelings that come out around things and empathetic towards those is really important. Today's episode has focused on the ABC Health Literacy Model and how incorporating the Ask, Build, Check steps into your conversations with patients can help foster patient understanding about gout causes and management options. Including the Health Literacy Model into your practice can help smooth the way when talking with patients about gout. Kia ora, and thanks for joining us today for this legendary conversation. And don't forget that part two of this podcast will be out soon, where we'll be demonstrating how to use the ABC model to talk with your patients about gout. A massive thanks to Nicola, Carla and Mehana for sitting down with us for this podcast. If you have an account with us, you can record your professional learning from this podcast by going to our website and pressing the capture button in the podcast page. Just go to akoharinga.co.nz and sign up for free. You'll also find more content related to this podcast and further clinical education there. Thanks again for listening. We hope you enjoyed this legendary conversation.
Legendary Conversations is brought to you by He Ako Hiringa. Music by PJ Shepard and sound engineering by Steve Hart. Thank you.